Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. You'll find it on page 890 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and this morning we come to the first 18 verses of John chapter 5. Please give your attention to God's Word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to some of the leadership of our men's ministry, and we were planning for the future some things that we'd like to address in the men's ministry. And one of the issues that was brought up that we could talk about was just the busyness of life and how it tends to crowd out the more important things And after that conversation, a few days later, one of the men in that conversation sent me a link to a blog online that was called, Busyness is Not a Virtue. And what occasioned the writing of this blog, this woman who wrote the blog, she was increasingly frustrated by how many conversations she has in her life with people who go on and on and on about how busy they are. And so she kind of uses this blog as a rant. And at one point during this writing, she translates the phrase, I'm too busy, which we use all the time. She translates it for what we really mean. First of all, what do we mean to others when we say to them, I'm so busy, or I'm too busy? She says what we really are trying to say to them is, I matter. My life has significance. I'm important. 
I have, or we're saying, I have a good excuse for not doing things that I don't want to do. But she says, if really what we're saying to ourselves, if we were honest with ourselves, is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid my life isn't significant. I'm afraid my life doesn't have importance. And so I'm distracting myself with a lot of things. Or I feel guilty about neglecting the more important things in life. So I overbook myself with trivial things. Let me read you another quote from that blog. She says, The worship of busyness as a virtue is where the trouble begins. It's easy, even even enticing, to neglect the importance of filling our time with meaning, thinking instead that we'll be content with merely filling our time. We self-impose these measures of self-worth by looking at quantity instead of quality of activity. One of the main points of what she's trying to say is that we're not the victims of our busyness, no matter how we may talk about it that way. We're making conscious choices. And we fill our lives with busyness in order to avoid the kind of reordering of our priorities that will really give our life meaning and significance. At one point near the end of this article, the writer says challenges us to replace the phrase, I don't have time, with the phrase, it's not a priority. Now, in some cases, that would be a legitimate and honorable thing to say. Instead of saying, I don't have time to paint my garage, I could say, it's not a priority to paint my garage, and that's fine. But, in most cases, if we really did replace the phrase, I don't have time, with it's not a priority, it would bring a lot of conviction, I think. It's not a priority for me to spend time in prayer and reading God's word. Doesn't quite sound as honorable as I don't have time. I bring up the issue of busyness partly because it's a plague in our culture. In spite of living in one of the times of most ease and convenience due to technology, instead of having more time, we seem to be busier than any generation has ever been before. It certainly is an issue. But the other reason I bring it up is because the center of John 5, the controversy that is the triggering point that of the account that we have in John 5 is about the Sabbath. The teaching of God's law that we are to spend one day out of seven in rest. The story begins with both Jesus and the man who he healed being attacked for breaking the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is all about priorities. The Sabbath is all about rest. The Sabbath is about what's meaningful and important in life. And it's about what we really worship in life. One of the main ideas that I'd like to get across to you from this passage this morning is that the Sabbath is a gift from God to us. And it's a gift that the church has largely rejected. Let's look at this gift. Jesus, in this story, is returning from Galilee. Remember, remember, he's really based in Galilee at this point. And he's returning to Jerusalem because one of the three annual feasts where all the Jewish males especially were to go back to Jerusalem is taking place. So he's back at Jerusalem for one of the major feasts. 
And the setting of this story is by the sheep gate where they brought the sheep for sacrifice into the city through the city wall. And it's about the pool of Bethesda. And if you, I've never been to Jerusalem, but if you've ever been there, you, you can actually go to the pool of Bethesda. They found it. They, the archaeologists were able to uncover it about 140 years ago. And it's just as John describes it here. Another one of those confirmations of archaeology that the Bible is amazingly accurate because you have the pool right where John said it was and there's even evidence of these five pillars which held up the what's called the colonnades the five colonnades that are around the pool in verse 3 it says that around this pool and under the shelter of these colonnades these roofs that were held up by pillars were masses of invalids handicapped people People with all kinds of diseases and limitations and weaknesses. Particularly, he lists paralysis and blindness. But why were they there? Why were they all gathered around this particular pool? Well, look at verse 4 and it'll give you the answer. Hmm. Where is verse 4? Did you notice that? Verse 4 is missing. Well, that's, and I don't have time to get into it, but it's one of those textual issues. You'll see, actually, if you go to your footnotes, most of your Bibles, I think the Pew Bibles, has the footnote that the end of verse 3 and verse 4 are not included in most modern translations. And that's because as they go through the, the efforts to try to determine what the original writings of the New Testament were, there are some passages that are in doubt. Usually because the earliest manuscripts that we found through archaeology, the earliest manuscripts don't contain some passages that we have in the New Testament. And so there's a big debate that's going on in the history of the church. If it's the earliest manuscript we have and it doesn't include it, does that mean that it probably wasn't in the original writing of John? Or, you know, that's, it's a huge question. I don't have time to get into it this morning. I wish I did. But just to know that this is one of those small little, uh, in the big picture of things, not a significant issue, but a small little thing that, that is in doubt whether it was actually what John wrote in his original gospel. But the important point is that if you see the footnote there, what it explains is that it, there was a belief at the time that an angel would occasionally come to the pool of Bethesda and stir the water. In other words, just the, the, they would see the water move, and when they saw the water move, they thought an angel did that, and so they would all try to jump into the pool, believing that the first person to get into the pool after the stirring of the water would be healed. That's what the missing verse explains. Now, whether John actually wrote that when he originally wrote the gospel, or whether that was added in later, it's undoubtedly the case. That was believed that, that, that if it's a superstition or if there's any spiritual reality to it, we can't know. But that's what the people believed in the days of Jesus. And that's why all these invalids were gathered there. They were hoping for a miracle. They were desperate. You think about what medical care was back like then. It was like, you know, you had, if you were blind, if you were lame, you had no hope except a miracle. And this is where a place where miracle people would put their hope in miracles would gather. And you'll notice what the rule of the pool was. First come, first served. Every man for himself. Survival of the fittest. 
That's why I don't believe that this was really a genuine work of God. If there was anything supernatural going on here, I don't think it was a genuine work of God because we've talked about this as we've been working our way through John. God doesn't use signs and wonders that way. That's, what, that's how magic works. It's not how God uses miracles. Miracles are signs. They're signs that point, point to spiritual truths. And this one, to me, sounds more like magic. It was probably a superstition. Maybe there were underground springs or wells that, that caused the water to move at times, and somehow this legend developed. I don't know. But the important point, really, it doesn't matter. Because, and I'm sure John, you know, it makes sense. That's why they're there. And so, but for some reason, John left that out. If he did, we don't know. But the important point is, it's all about Jesus. It's not about the miracle. It's not about the pool. Matter of fact, John wants to de-emphasize the pool. Jesus walks into the scene and for some reason that we don't fully know, he singles out one of all of these invalids, he singles out one of them. A man who had been lame for 38 years, and he offers him what I believe the two, true meaning of Sabbath is about, which is rest and restoration. But the important point here is that Jesus is the source of that rest. Look at verse 6. Jesus asked this man who had been lame for 38 years, he asked him a really odd question. Do you want to be healed? If I walked up to you on the street and said, do you want me to give you a million dollars? You would look at me like I was crazy. Of course I want that. And of course this man would readily say, yes, I want to be healed. That's why I'm here. But Jesus didn't ever ask worthless questions. And Jesus never asked questions for his own information. Jesus asked questions to cause those whom he's asking to consider their own heart. To think more deeply than the surface. And I do believe that's what he's doing in this situation. He's asking this man to think about what he really wants. What is he really after in life? What's he really lacking? What does he need? The man responds with a pitiful account of his total inability to beat the other invalids into the pool when the water was stirred. And no one would help him. Now, it's dangerous to read things into the text, but I think you pick up on a bit of a tone here of bitterness. He resented the fact that he could get no help to be the first into the pool. And you get a sense of despair. He'd given up. He'd lost hope. And Jesus says, forget about the pool. Jesus says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Literally, walk around, is what he says. Think about this miracle. This man had been lame, he had not walked, he'd been up, not up on his feet for 38 years. And instantaneously, all of the bone structure, all of the muscles, all the ligaments, all the nerves are totally restored to the point where he's able to stand up and walk. Now that's a miracle. Jesus did it without water, he did it without the pool, he did it without angels. 
He spoke. Because that's the power of the word of Jesus Christ. He spoke, and his legs were restored, and his freedom to move around was restored. Once again, this miracle is a sign. It's not magic. It's the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't heal all the invalids. If he just wanted to impress people with his powers, he could have healed everyone there with just his word. He chose this man, and he shows him a sign. A sign of what he had come to do. Jesus had come to do much more than to make lame people walk. And this miracle was a sign of what he came to do. He came to get rid of suffering. He came to get rid of death. He came to get rid of sin. He came to reverse the effects of the fall. That's what he came to do. And this miracle was a sign of that. And by God's design, this miracle took place. Not only is it a sign of the rest that God offers, but it takes place on the day of rest itself. That's what verse 9 points out. John makes it clear that this miracle took place on the Sabbath when the Jewish leaders saw the man carrying his mat, as Jesus had told him to do, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath laws. And that was a very serious matter in Israel in that day. It's amazing that these Jewish leaders did not care about the healing. They were so blinded in their self-righteousness, all they cared about was the infraction of their law. Because there is no Old Testament law that prohibits the carrying of the mat that you sleep on. This was an infraction against man-made laws that the rabbis had come up with over the centuries, and they came up with a boatload of man-made laws to add to what God says about the Sabbath. Over 1,500 by some counts. Man-made laws about the right way to keep the Sabbath. And the true purpose of the Sabbath had become lost in man-made religion. To the Jewish leadership and to the Jewish people in general in Jesus' day, the Sabbath day had become a day of dutiful idleness and meritorious sacrifice. It was all about work that men did in resting for God as opposed to resting in God's work for man. Remember that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sometimes people misinterpret that. Jesus, when he said that, when he said that man was made, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, that doesn't mean that man was made Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus never said that man is Lord of the Sabbath. He said he is the Lord of the Sabbath. But what he meant was that the Sabbath was intended as a gift for us. The Sabbath was meant as a gift for man. A blessing, a celebration. You see, this dispute between Jesus and the Jewish leadership is not about a loose view of Sabbath keeping and a strict view of Sabbath keeping. That's not what it's about. It's about what is the true purpose of the Sabbath and what is the man-made purpose of the Sabbath. Sabbath rest, according to Scripture, is not about sleeping the afternoon away. 
Sabbath rest is not about idleness. Sabbath rest is not about inactivity. To understand what Sabbath rest is all about, you've got to go back to that moment when Adam and Eve, having sinned against God and rebelled against their Creator, were cast out of the Garden of Eden into the wilderness, out of the presence of God. And at that moment, God in His grace went to Adam and Eve when they deserved nothing from Him, and He offered to them a promise. He said that the seed of the woman would one day come, that someday a descendant of Adam and Eve would come, and that seed of the woman would crush the head of the, the, of the serpent, who was Satan. And the curse would be undone. And we would find rest from the curse. Not too much later in history, a man named Lamech had a son. And we know that Lamech was a man of faith because he named his son Noah. And the word Noah in Hebrew means rest. And when asked to explain why he named his son Noah, he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Noah hoped that his son Noah might be the Messiah, the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Sabbath rest is about reversing sin's curse. Sabbath rest is about returning to Eden. It's about restoration. It's about healing. It's about eternal blessing. It's about living as children of God in the very presence of God for all eternity. That's what the Sabbath is about. You know, it's interesting that the law regarding the Sabbath is given twice in Scripture. There's two givings of the Ten Commandments. You know that. First one's in Exodus 20. Let me read that one to you. What I want you to notice is that when the law is given, when the Ten Commandments are given, they're identical in Exodus and Deuteronomy except for one difference. And the difference is in the purpose of the Sabbath. And this is significant. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. This is the first time the law of the Ten Commandments are given. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He set apart the seventh day that it was not to be like the other six days of normal, ordinary labor and responsibility. He set it apart. Why? What's the purpose of doing that? So that we might remember God, our Creator. That we might remember Eden. That we might remember what God intended the whole cosmos, especially the earth, especially mankind, to be. It's to remember from where we've fallen. Those who say that the Sabbath is a ceremonial rule that's not intended for today need to realize that it was established in creation. God established the Sabbath when he made the world before sin entered the world. And it's been a part of the people of faith ever since. 
Moses didn't introduce the Sabbath. He just codified it. God included it among the moral law. The Ten Commandments are the moral law of God, not the ceremonial laws that are shadows of Christ. It's part of the moral law. And it's always been there for us to remember God is our creator. But it's also a sign. It also has what we call typological. It's a sign, a shadow of Christ as well. It's both part of the moral law, but it's also a sign. It's a sign of the covenant. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 5 is talking about. This is the second time, just before they enter into the promised land, that God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. And in this giving of the law, notice, again, everything else about the Ten Commandments is the same. This is the only thing that's different. Listen carefully to the difference in the giving of this commandment about the Sabbath. Beginning in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Do you see? Same commandment, two purposes. First purpose is to remember God as our creator and to remember the blessing of God's presence that we fell from. But the second purpose is to remember that God is our redeemer. That God has bought us back. That God has delivered us from slavery. And we know that the Exodus was a shadow itself of the far greater deliverance that we experience under Christ. The deliverance from sin and suffering and death and Satan. Noah didn't give us rest from the curse that resulted from the sin of Adam and Eve. Moses and Joshua, that's what the book of Joshua makes clear, that Moses and Joshua didn't provide rest when they led the people to the promised land. These were shadows of Christ. The ultimate Sabbath rest was one at the cross where Jesus bore the total effect of the fall, the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He bore it on the tree. He bore it on the cross and delivered us and all of creation from the effects of the fall by his victory at the cross. And so the Sabbath day is a day that is set apart. It's a holy day. It's not to be like the other six days of the week. The Sabbath day is set apart as a celebration of creation and a celebration of redemption. Paradise lost and paradise regained until Christ comes to fulfill it completely at his second coming. Hebrews talks about this future rest in chapter 4. In this part of Hebrews, the writer is making clear that Moses and Joshua did not provide rest. As a matter of fact, a whole generation of people died in the wilderness without entering into the promised land. And again, he points forward to the future rest of Christ's second coming. And this is what he says, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, the Jews in the wilderness, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we who believed enter that rest. Let me skip down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath day is a glorious thing. It's a gift from God to us. It's a time set apart from all the hassles and busyness of our life. It's a time set apart to rejoice in God as our creator and to rejoice in God as our redeemer through Jesus Christ. Those who defend Sabbath keeping often talk about the benefits of taking one-seventh of our time and resting physically. And certainly there are many benefits. It's the way God designed us. But that's not the greatest benefit. That's a minor benefit compared to what the Sabbath day ultimately points to. There's so much more to keeping the Sabbath than resting physically. God has blessed me with a happy marriage. One of the things that has helped the marriage between my wife Suzanne and I to stay healthy over all these years is a commitment that we made way back at the beginning In our marriage, in our family, we made a commitment that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. And the second day of the week, Monday, is Suzanne's Day. What are you laughing about? (laughs) I hope that was a laughter of agreement, not a laughter of jest. No, seriously, Monday is her day. It's a day to focus on her. We spend the whole day together. We try hard not to let anything steal that time from us. Because she's that important. And it's kept our relationship strong. Because the other six days of the week, I've got hundreds of people pulling at me in all different directions. And she's got many people pulling at her as well. Sometimes we're like ships passing in the night during the week. But on Monday, it's between me and her. And we work hard to keep anyone or anything from stealing that time from us. This is what the Lord's Day is meant to be for all of us. It's your day with the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord to you to celebrate Him as your Creator and your Redeemer. Why? Why do we give it up so that we can mow the lawn, go to the store, earn more money, And do things that are all the responsibilities that are of the other six ordinary common days of the week. Why do we reject this wonderful gift that God has given us? The Lord's Day is about our relationship with Him and with the church. Which brings us to how we should respond to this gift. Going back to the text in John 5. Jesus finds the healed man in the temple and he says to him, See, you're well. Sin no more and nothing worse may happen to you. Now he's not telling the man that his paralysis was some punishment or the result of some sin in the past history of his life. Literally in the, in the Greek he says, stop sinning. In other words, leave your lifestyle of sin. He's calling upon this man to repent and believe and trust in him. 
because he is the curse breaker. He's the one who not only can make his legs well, but make him totally well. Body, soul, and spirit. Otherwise, Jesus says, something far worse will come upon you. And that something far worse is eternal separation from God. The wrath of God for all eternity in hell, that's the something worse that will come upon him if he will not repent and believe in Christ. That's the opposite of our eternal rest. The sad part of the story is that there is no evidence of saving faith in this man who was healed. He was physically healed, but there's no sign of spiritual healing in his heart. He didn't ask to be healed. When the Jewish leaders confronted him about carrying his mat, he shifted the blame to Jesus. Well, he told me to. He didn't even care to find out who Jesus was. He was so busy walking and running around after he was healed. And then in verse 15, I think, is the most condemning statement. It says that he went away after Jesus told him to repent and believe. It says he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He was more concerned about protecting his status with the Jewish leadership. And he was willing to betray Christ to them. Do you want to be healed? That's what Jesus offers. Not just for the moment, but for eternity. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is creator and he is redeemer. And through the cross, he delivers us from the curse of sin and death. And he brings restoration to all creation according to God's original intentions. That's what the Sabbath is about, because the Sabbath is all about Christ. Let me close with a very familiar passage from Isaiah 58. If you turn, your, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight... The holy day of the Lord, honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God has given us a gift of one-seventh of our time to rest in Christ, to celebrate him as our creator and our redeemer. Please don't neglect the gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Sabbath day. And thank you for what it points to. The finished work of Christ on the cross. That is where our hope lies. May he be honored in how we observe this Sabbath day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.